Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guys. My name is Scott Powell, and I am one lone Lanky Guy today. Uh, Father Peter had a scheduling conflict that came up kind of at the last minute, so um, it is just me today, but that's okay because we... Uh, are going to have a great time today. That's that's a little presumptuous of me. I don't know if we're going to have a good time or not. I am, and I hope you do as well. Um, we uh, this um, mm, I got to tell you, this is a complicated set of readings today. They're they're straightforward in some ways, but there is a lot going on. So I'm actually really excited to spend a little bit of time with you guys on these readings for the Feast of All Saints Day, or the Solemnity rather of All Saints Day, which is. Uh, kind of cool because the feast or the solemnity rather of All Saints Day, it's pretty rare that it actually falls on a Sunday. So this is not the kind of thing we get to do very often um, in terms of these readings. So this is this is a cool one. So we're going to be looking at the readings from the Catholic Mass, of course, from November 1st. So it's the Solemnity of All Saints. And our first reading this weekend is coming from the book of Revelation. Creepy, scary, intimidating Revelation. Chapter 7, verses 2 to 4, and then 9 through 14. And I'm really excited to uh, to look at some of the things that are going on here because this is one of those books that is so intimidating for people. Um, for good reason. This is um, John's vision, his dream, as he's actually saying the Mass on this island called Patmos. So there's a lot of strange, crazy things going on here. And I'm excited to show, or try to show at least, how this applies to the rest of the readings and, and hopefully to our everyday lives. So Revelation, our responsorial psalm, is coming from Psalm 24. Uh, verse 1, a um, couple different parts of verse 1, then 2, then 3 and 4, and then 5 and 6. With the response coming from verse 6, Lord, this is the people that longs to see your face. Our second reading is from 1 John, which is, again, one of those books we don't spend a whole lot of time in in the liturgy. This is one of the rare occasions we get to the first epistle of St. John, not the Gospel of John, but one of the letters that presumably he writes later on. So 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And then our gospel is coming from Matthew, and we've been in Matthew for a long time now, but we're taking a a step back. So we've been thoroughly in the um, section of Matthew when Jesus is about to go to the Passion, when he's kind of getting tested and prodded and argued with by the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders. Now we're taking a big rewind, and we're going all the way back back to chapter 5 of Matthew, and we're going to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So it's chapter 5, verses 1 through 12a. Other readings we're getting this week. So um, that's what we're looking at. And uh, without further ado, I'm just going to jump straight in to the book of Revelation, which, um, gosh, you guys, there are so many things that we can say about the book of Revelation. And actually, if, if you, uh, not to be self-promotional, but if you are curious uh, about going a little deeper into this book, over the summer, I actually did a little online class, a little online retreat about the book of Revelation. So if you go to thomascenter.org, you can actually find a link to, uh, I think it was a four-part session or a five-part, I can't recall. Um, but a multi a multi um, session uh, class we did on the book of Revelation. If you want to go a little bit further, but a couple of things we know about the book of Revelation are this: Revelation was again, what's the genre? It's it's such a strange genre because there's almost nothing like it in the Bible. We have moments where we have visions of important people and dreams that people are caught up in, but this is an entire book that is a vision that St. John, the beloved apostle, the last apostle to die, the only one actually who dies naturally and is not martyred. This is a vision that John says in the first lines of the book that he gets while he was imprisoned on an 
island called Patmos while he was saying mass. There's some terminology that John uses that make it clear that this vision that he receives is something that happens in the context of the mass, which knowing that it comes in the context of the liturgy makes a lot of things about this book more clear because the imagery that John receives has a lot to do with incense and vestments and liturgical items and all sorts of stuff that actually, if you understand the context in which he's seeing these things, make everything make a little bit more sense. But the section that we're talking about falls kind of smack in the middle of the darkest part of the book and the part of the book that has the most to do with judgment, which is the part of the book that really freaks people out. And a lot of the book of Revelation is structured around um, these uh, sets of seven things that God uses as judgment on a world that is shrouded in sin and as a consequence for sin. So you may remember hearing about the seven seals. Um, uh, that's the part of the uh, the part of Revelation where we hear about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which you probably heard of. So there are seven seals, there are seven trumpets, and there are seven bowls all of which are sort of understood in the traditional understanding of the church. This is a book, the book of Revelation is written in a style that's called recapitulative history. Recapitulative history, which is a big fancy term for essentially meaning an historical loop. So when you read about these seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, they're not 21 separate events. They're not as if John is seeing this stuff occurring in a linear timeline. It's as if the first seven seals are actually going to display one aspect of an event, and then the seven trumpets will explain a different aspect of the same event. And then the seven bowls explain yet another aspect of the same event. They're kind of like Russian nesting dolls. And what the church has always traditionally sort of seen, although there are a lot of things going on in Revelation, and there is a lot that Revelation can tell us, about the unseen spiritual realities that even exist around us today in 2020. Ultimately, this book was talking about an event or a series of events that happened in the lifetime of its audience. And John actually makes that clear, that the things that he's talking about will occur or are about to occur in the time frame of the people that he's writing to, which presumably was the people in his churches that he was bishop over in the region around Ephesus in Asia Minor in the first century. Uh, and the event that they all seem to be talking about are the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which happens between 66 and 70 AD when the Roman armies attack Jerusalem, which was the most cataclysmic event for the Jewish people of the first century. It flipped everything upside down. And it was the culmination of a profound amount of persecution by the Roman Empire, oppression of the Jewish people, and a lot of fighting, a lot of false messiahs that were promising the people of Israel, a lot of false things like power and wealth and influence, all in the worldly sense, if they would follow these false messiahs and try to tear down the nation of Rome. Jesus, of course, gives a very different uh, idea of what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like, which is not one of obliterating and destroying our enemies, but converting them, bringing them into the family of God, which is why I think it's not coincidental that all throughout the New Testament, you see a bunch of Roman centurion and Roman soldiers who are coming into the family of God. So 
Uh, all of that is, again, kind of a, a backdrop for where we are in Revelation. So this is the part of Revelation where there is a whole lot of destruction and chaos being talked about. And in a lot of ways, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, which Jesus says in the Gospels, of course, was because of the sins of the people of God that they had made the temple into a den of robbers and thieves and followed after false messiahs and false gods and false hopes of what they thought they ought to be. Kind of in the middle of that, in chapter 7, there's a little respite. And there's a moment of brightness kind of in the, in the middle of all this darkness, right? So there's a, a respite from all of, the, um, uh, all of the harshness and all of the, the chaos and judgment that's coming. World, This isn't just God ticked off. This is, Revelation is trying to show, this is what human sin does. It brings chaos and it brings destruction. But in the middle of this really kind of depressing scene, we get chapter 7 and we get a momentary reprieve and we're drawn back up into the throne room of God's presence where the book of Revelation kind of begins. And John is given God's perspective on the events that are happening here. So um, we're told, and I actually just want to read it because it's, it's worth looking at the text itself. John is told, he says, I, John, I saw another angel coming up from the east, holding the seal of the living God. And he cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were given the power to damage the land and the sea, all this destruction he's seeing. He said, do not damage the land or the sea and the tree or the trees until we put the seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. And I heard the number of those who had been marked with the seal, 144,000 marked from every tribe of the children of Israel. After this, I saw a vision of a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation, race, people, and tongue. And they stood before the throne and before the lamb, wearing white robes, holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation comes from our God, who is seated on the throne and from the lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and the, uh, around the elders and the four living creatures. They prostrated themselves before the throne. They worshiped God. They exclaimed, amen, blessing and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving, honor and might be to our God forever and ever. And then one of the elders spoke to me, to John, and said, Who are these wearing white robes and where do they come from? And he said, My Lord, you're the one who knows. I, I don't know who these people are. You tell me. And he said to me, These are the ones who have survived the time of great distress. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. All right. A whole lot of stuff that's going on here, right? So the idea here in the text is that this judgment that John has been seeing is held off until this faithful group is sealed. And it says, until they're sealed on their foreheads, which there's a lot of biblical references going on here. But what the church has always sort of seen as far as, okay, who are these people that are going to be sealed and brought into God's communion, his, in his throne room? Um, there's a reference back to the book of Ezekiel. And in the book of Ezekiel, there is this prophecy that Ezekiel gives about people who are marked on their foreheads uh, with a sign before the destruction of Jerusalem, when Jerusalem was destroyed the first time. And Ezekiel was told, uh, or he saw, saw this vision of the Lord saying, go through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And, uh, you know, God is told to pass over them and they will be spared. Um, 
In Hebrew, the word for mark, the word for a mark, is actually the Hebrew letter tau, which is spelled T-A-U in, in English, which tau, the letter tau, actually in Hebrew looks a lot like a T. And so when the ancient church fathers kind of read these things in the Old Testament, they said, holy cow, there's a prophecy in Ezekiel about people being marked with a sign on their foreheads, or marked with a mark, literally. And mark in Hebrew looks like a T, and a T looks an awful light like a cross. And maybe this is a foreshadowing of the seal of the cross. And actually, if you read on, if you go on in church tradition, the Greek word for seal is frequently in the tradition of the church used as a baptismal image of a sign of baptism. Um, And that's actually what you seem to get in this readings, right? And this is the catechism talks about that, right? That our baptisms mark us or seal us to be part of God's family. And that appears to be what's going on here. It it also speaks about this weird number, 144,000. Now, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, you would say, and tradition in Jehovah's Witness, uh, the Jehovah's Witness religion teaches that there are 144,000 people who will go to heaven. And the rest of us will live sort of in an earthly paradise um, on earth, but but they're really only 144,000 that are truly saved, and they get it from this passage. Now, that's not quite the Catholic view, of course, on this, right? In, in the Catholic tradition, we believe that this is a symbolic number, which represents 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, so 12 times 12 times 1,000. And we know that, of course, in the, in the Jewish and, and the early Christian mindset, numbers mattered greatly. Numbers had a hugely symbolic value. And 12, of course, would make someone think about the 12 tribes of Israel, which Jesus said it is his purpose to reestablish, to build back up. So the 12 tribes of Israel times a thousand, and in the in the Hebrew sort of symbolic world, the number a thousand also had a symbolism to it. And a thousand meant a lot, um, which is sound, sounds like kind of a crude way to say it, right? But it literally means a lot. Um, but it's a finite number. So in other words, if you take kind of the symbolic language of these numbers, It's saying all of God's people, a new established Israel who choose to be with him. And there's going to be a lot of them. And then he goes on and says this 144,000 that represents a lot of people from all of the 12 tribes of the Israel that was and the Israel that God is establishing. Now I saw that they're a great multitude. And they're from every nation and race, people and tongue. They're not just ethnic Israel anymore. Now it is the whole globe and it's the whole earth that have received baptism, that have been marked with that seal of the cross and are now in the throne room of God. Those who survived the tribulation, both in the time that John is writing with all the chaos that's going on and the war with Rome, but also up into this present moment. It looks forward in time and speaks to all of us who are baptized, who remain faithful to that mark of baptism that we've been given and that we get to experience the veil lifted being in the throne room of God, seeing reality for what it really is. That's what this vision is all about. So there's a a very specific meaning in the text itself, but I do believe it, it pulls forward and says something to us now, which actually is an interesting segue, I think, into Psalm 24. And Psalm 24 is a really beautiful psalm, right? This is the people that longs to see your face. It begins by saying, the Lord The Lord's are the earth in its fullness, the world and everyone who dwells in it. For he founded it upon the seas, he established it upon the rivers. It talks about how everything on earth 
from corner to corner, from end to end, up and down, top to bottom. It's all God's, right? And Psalm 24 traditionally was often seen as a procession liturgy. So it was a psalm that was that was traditionally believed to recall the time that David brought the Ark of the Covenant finally into Jerusalem and established the temple, God's presence, his sanctuary. And so it was often a psalm in the Jewish tradition that would be prayed or sang rather as people processed to the temple where God's presence was. And I don't think it's coincidental then that on the Feast of the Solemnity of All Saints Day, as we're recalling all of those who have come before us who have processed into the true sanctuary of God, that this is the psalm that that the church has us sing. And that it represents not just this limited procession, but the fact that everything and all people and all tongues and all races on the earth are the Lord's. And it speaks to this assembly that not only gathers, but processes. It's, it's uh, believed to be used in times of festivals commemorating this event. So it was believed that every, every year when they remembered and celebrated that moment that the Ark of the Covenant came and settled in Jerusalem in the temple, that this is the psalm that they would all sing as they remembered the idea of coming home. And so isn't it beautiful that then the church has this concept of coming home to our true home, to our heavenly home, with the veil lifted and we see reality for what it is that we're meant to recall this today. I think it's kind of beautiful that in the West, you know, at least in this hemisphere, this is one of the darkest times of the year. And I think socially, politically, spiritually, perhaps, um, this is a dark time. It's physically getting darker. This is the weekend that we get daylight savings time, unless you're in, what is it, Indiana or, or, or uh, Arizona or something. But for the rest of us, we're stuck with it getting darker earlier. And so as darkness is literally beginning to shroud everything for us, we're given this hope and this sign and this bright prophecy, this bright psalm song about truly coming home into the light. So as the darkness begins to shroud us, we're meant to be called upward into the light, which is a beautiful thing for the church to have done here, which I think leads us into 1 John, our second reading. And again, 1 John, this isn't a book that we hear from a whole heck of a lot, but I think it's a really beautiful one. 1 John, um, it's believed traditionally, of course, to have been written by John himself, who is the same John that wrote the book of Revelation, who's the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, the same John who was present at the Last Supper, sitting next to Jesus, laying his head on Jesus' breast, that John, the beloved disciple. Now, it's believed when John was bishop over the area around Ephesus and Asia Minor, that perhaps this was a letter later in John's life, late in John's life, that he writes to his church, who it seems was dealing with heresy or a heretical group, false teachers, who've come into the church and seem to be denying that Jesus was, as John says, the Christ. Scholars aren't really sure exactly what heresy they're dealing with here. Maybe some say it's something like Docetism, the Docetists, Docetists rather, uh, were a group that that denied the reality of Christ's humanity. They said, well, no, he's just God and he kind of looked like a human. There's also the idea of the Gnostics that also sort of denied the humanity of Jesus, that he was just pure spirit and divine, kind of just looked like these things. We're not entirely sure 
what the heresy is that John is dealing with. But what he does is drill home the reality that Jesus is God. He became incarnate. He became a human being, fully God, fully man. And if we are united with him, if we should, if we have been marked with that sign, I'm, I'm putting words in John's mouth, but really what he's saying is if we've been become children of God through baptism, because that's the way it's done, then we need to live as though we understand that there is still a veil over our eyes and there is so much beyond it. Listen to what he says here in the middle part of his letter. He says, beloved, and that's a great way of a pastor addressing his flock. I think it's very beautiful. He says, see what love the Father has bestowed on us. In other words, literally poured out on us that we may be called the children of God. How are we called the children of God? Because we've been marked in our baptism with that seal. And yet so we are. He says, the reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. So beloved, we're God's children now. In other words, the world has changed. Everything you knew before is different. He says, what we shall be has not yet been revealed. There's more to come. There's things beyond what we can see. We do know that when it is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope based on him makes himself pure as he is pure. It's kind of poetic. Um, It's a little bit abstract sounding if you kind of take it out of its context. But what I love about this passage is that it's saying, despite the sufferings that you're facing, despite false teachers and people leading you astray and confusion reigning because nobody exactly knows who to believe, who to trust, who to follow. He's saying, pause, take a breath, remember the reality of who you are. You are Christ's. You have been marked. You have been set aside. What we shall be has not been totally revealed, but we have clues. We have inklings because we have prophecies like Ezekiel. We will eventually have the book of Revelation where John begins to see what he said he has not seen yet. I think if I'm remembering uh, the, the church's history and traditional view on this correctly, I believe the church thinks that revelation came afterwards, came a little bit later. I don't remember. But regardless, he's saying what we are to be has not been revealed. And then in revelation, he actually gets the great gift of God of seeing a little bit of it revealed. And then he clues us in. He gives us that insight. And he says, look, this is what is waiting for you. I know the world is hard. I know times are confusing. And there is the real struggle. And this is not an excuse to dismiss the real struggles of life. This isn't an excuse to disengage from politics or society or our work or our vocations or all of the things that we are called to. Our job is to do those things with the full knowledge that there is so much more beyond what we can see. There are invisible spiritual realities at work at every moment, working in our president, working in our, the candidates, working in political leaders, working in every single person around us and our families, which is meant to tell us and remind us that there is more that God is doing than we can see. God knows where humanity is headed. God knows where civilization and politics and the United States of America, for Pete's sake, he knows where all of it is headed. And what we need to know is that we are God's children now, not in some future time to come. We will see what that means in a future time to come. But now we are God's children. Why do we know we're God's children? Because God came here. He became incarnate and he gave us the gift of grace and of the sacraments that we could be united to him. And so we are. So we have the option. We have the opportunity to be made pure.
And not just that, but to live it out. Um, I think it's a beautiful passage, and I think it's a great reminder as we celebrate the Solemnity of All Saints Day that we are called to live that reality in the here and now with the anticipation of that which is yet to come, which takes us to Matthew. And Matthew, um, honestly, goodness, Matthew almost seemed to me like more the wild card reading this week than the others. Usually it's the second reading that you're like, oh my gosh, how do I tie this one in? But it was kind of Matthew this week, and I think it does. I think it ties in actually very well. But it took a little bit, um, it takes a little bit of of work to get there. there. There's kind of some face value stuff. But then we have to kind of drill in a little bit more. Um, Matthew 5, the the gospel reading we have this week, is from, as I mentioned before, the very beginning of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is this um, really foundational section of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, of course, remember, was a tax collector before he was an apostle, which means he was an accountant. And Matthew is the most organized of all of the Gospels. Matthew is um, it's that saying there's a, a place for everything and everything in its place. Matthew almost has little drawers in which he puts everything in the Gospels and the way in which he arranges the story of Jesus. And here he arranges all of the major teachings of Jesus in chapters 5, 6, and 7, which are the Sermon on the Mount. And if you read it closely, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5, 6, and 7, actually follows an ancient Jewish tradition that I find very beautiful. There was, uh, um, he's recorded in the Talmud. So um, a, rabbi, a, rabbi, excuse me, a rabbi named Rabbi Simeon the Righteous, a very famous rabbi, incredibly well-known, well-versed. But he wrote, uh, and it shows up in the Babylonian Talmud, he wrote that um, when God founded the world, there were three pillars that basically hold everything up. And so for those of us who want to be faithful followers of Yahweh, there are three things we have to center our life around, three revelations, three pillars that hold everything up. And, and I always call them the three W's. They are word, worship, and works of mercy. In Hebrew, they're Torah, Avodah, and Gemilut Chesed. Torah, Avodah, and Gemilut Chesed. So God's word, if you want to be serious about following God, understand what he has revealed, the word that he has spoken. And of course, for Christians, the word that he has spoken actually took on human flesh. So know his word. And if we know his word, we need to respond to that word with worship. Avodah, giving ourselves back to God is what St. Thomas Aquinas called the virtue of religion, which is injustice. We give ourselves back to God who gave himself to us. And then the logical outcropping of all of that, of living that way, is Gemilut said, works of mercy, works of loving kindness, doing things for those around us, loving the body of Christ around us. If we cannot, how can we say, as James says, right? How can we say we love the God we cannot see if we cannot love the brothers and sisters that we can see? This is actually those three things, word, worship, and works of mercy, are in a lot of ways exactly how the Sermon on the Mount is structured, right? Chapter 5 has a lot to do with the word. You have heard it said this, but I say this. Chapter 6 is about worship, right? When you pray, when you fast, do it like this. Don't do these things. Don't like act like a hypocrite. And then in chapter 7, the third part, he talks a lot about how to respond to one another. Acts of mercy, works of loving kindness. Gemilut said, right? But here at the very beginning, as he's beginning to establish this, Basically, what Jesus does is give the concept of kingdom, ethics, and citizenship. 
What Jesus is doing, the, the, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, the first words out of Jesus' mouth, and, and right before him, actually, the first words out of John the Baptist's mouth are the words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has now come and is within your reach. I actually like the term at hand because if you're a Jewish person and you're living in the first century, you have been beat up, you've been oppressed, you've had your land taken away, you've lost your king, and you've had most of your own people stripped from you. Israel is suffering profoundly in the time of Jesus' birth, under foreign occupation, lost, having lost their home with a false king on the throne, a guy named Herod who wasn't even Jewish. They've lost David, they've lost their influence, and most of the 12 tribes have been obliterated and wiped out by this point. And so what every Jew is longing for and waiting for is a reestablishment of the kingdom, for God's kingdom to return. And as I mentioned earlier, there are probably hundreds of false messiah, at least dozens of people saying, no, I am the new king. Maybe I'm the new David. I'm the new Moses who's going to lead the people of Israel into a new promised land. There are a whole lot of people. Maybe some of them genuinely believed that they were. Maybe some were swindlers or crooks or trying to get money or influence or power and trying to swindle people. I'm sure there was all all types. And all of these false messiahs promising these certain things to Israel if they followed that person. If you give me your money, if you give me your, your adherence, if you follow after me, I'll give you riches, I'll give you power, I'll tear down Rome, I'll take Caesar out of his throne, and we will be powerful again. Jesus shows up in the midst of that, and he sounds very different than all of those would-be messiahs. One of the things that's significant about this passage is that uh, is where it's happening. <clears throat> Excuse me, because time and place matter. And if you were a would-be revolutionary, and if you were a wannabe messiah that was trying to lead the people to revolution and freedom, and you were trying to convince them that you were God's chosen messenger to bring the kingdom back, what you would do oftentimes was go to the hillsides in the Galilee region, which was a vast area. There was lots of hiding places, lots of these dry wadis and canyons where the Roman centurion, the, the Roman government and the, the watchful eyes wouldn't necessarily find you or see you. It was a great place to build a militia. And so they would go out to these hills and they would stand up on mountains and they would give political speeches, rallying troops to follow after them. Jesus goes to those hills. He goes out to the hillsides of Galilee, and it says here, he went up on a mountain, and he begins to give a speech, which means that everybody who's there, all the people around, these crowds that are following him, they can anticipate exactly what is about to come out of his mouth. And he knows, okay, time and place, I understand the context, you're probably going to give a political speech, follow you, put my backing behind you, follow you and give you my support as God's chosen to overthrow the Romans and to take back what is ours. But in this case, Jesus saw the crowds, went up on the mountain, had his disciples come to him, and he begins to teach the opposite. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the land. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. And I think this is where the twist comes in Jesus's message. Because when he begins to say, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Everyone's kind of thinking, yeah, that's us. We are beat down. We've been made meek. We've mourned over the loss of our people. We've mourned over the loss of our land. We hunger and thirst for justice. We hunger and thirst for a lot of things. 
But then Jesus says, well, blessed are the merciful. And what nobody wants in this time, I think, is to be merciful. They want to fight. They want to take back what's theirs. They want a leader who's going to lead them to freedom and taking back what is rightfully theirs and getting Herod off the throne and defeating Caesar because he is oppressing the snot out of us. But Jesus says, no, show mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom, not of Rome, but of heaven. And blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward will be great, not here on earth necessarily, not when you take down the powers that be and you get all the influence and money and authority and everybody loves you. No, blessed are you when you get beat up and when people make fun of you and you get persecuted and you hunger and thirst for something that never seems to come to fruition. For if you are faithful to that, your reward will be great in heaven. When the veil is lifted, you will see, oh, this is why God allowed all these things to happen. He will go on from here to talk about forgiving and praying for those who persecute you, turning the other cheek when they slap you, carrying for two miles, that which the Roman uh, soldiers forced you to carry for one. Basically, he's upending everything we know about the world. And Jesus will slowly begin to reveal that the way of Israel is the way of conversion. The way of Israel is the way of God's kingship, which is a kingship that extends from sea to sea, from end to end, to the four corners of the earth. You know, up in Revelation, there was a, a, a line, I don't think it showed up in the reading, that talked about uh, people from the four corners of the earth or angels that were stationed at the four corners of the earth. And some people like to think that, well, the Bible talks about the four corners of the earth because they all thought the earth was flat, which doesn't make any sense because just because, even if they did believe the earth was flat, doesn't mean it's a square. It has nothing to do with the earth's shape when they talk about the four corners. The reason that the four corners are mentioned over and over in the scriptures is because all of the earth, all of creation was meant to be a temple. And so when it talks about the four corners of the earth, we're not just talking about these specific areas. It's talking about the earth in a different sense. It's talking about the earth as God's temple, as the place where we gather to experience God's presence and worship him and give ourselves back to him. Despite what the people around us say, despite what the consequences, God's temple is God's temple. And there will come a day when the veil is lifted and we will see it for what it is. And thanks be to God that John in his letter to the revelation, his, his, his revelation shows us an inkling of that, shows us a piece of that, gives us a glimpse behind the curtain, gives us a glimpse underneath the veil to see this is what's waiting for you. You have been marked, says John. And if you have been marked, guess what? Maybe you fall into those categories that Jesus is mentioning. Maybe you're poor in spirit. Maybe you're mourning. Maybe you feel meek. Maybe you feel hunger and thirsting for righteousness and justice. Maybe you feel like you're beat up and persecuted and always trampled down. And that's why John gives us what he does. That's why he lifts the veil ever so slightly. And John, of course, when he's writing these words, when he's recording these things, he is imprisoned on an island called Patmos, separated from everybody he loves, everything he knows. He's imprisoned out there and God is showing him insight into a reality that he can't even see, a world that's more real than even the real world that we see with our eyes. 
And that's Christian hope. Christian hope is not the idea that someday I'll die and I'll get to be swept away on the clouds and hopefully be with Jesus. Christian hope is that everything here and now, from the rocks to the trees to the politicians to the people in my life, everything is more than I realize because God's hand is on all of it, because all of the earth is God's temple. All four corners of it, not just of the globe, but of the temple that is creation, that was made and designed by God, that God rules over whether we know it and realize it or not. And once we can begin to tap into that reality, and if nothing else, believe that there is more to see than we can see, then we can begin living differently than the rest of the world, which is ultimately what all these readings are calling us to. The Feast of All Saints is not just calling us to hope for going to heaven when we die. That's a part of it. But the Feast of All Saints is the church calling us to live the reality here and now because of where we're destined, because of where we're going, and because of where our true citizenship lies. As we had as we go through these readings and we celebrate this feast day, let us not make this solemnity abstract. Let it not simply be something that we think about or hope for after we die, but then we can realize Jesus has already flipped the cosmos on its head. He has already transformed you and I and the world around us. There's still a veil over our eyes though. It still doesn't feel like it. But if we've been baptized, if we've been marked with that seal, then we are set aside. We have a citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, not simply and merely the place in which we live. So on this solemnity of All Saints Day, let's pray for the intercession of all the saints in heaven that they can assist us in understanding who we are and who we are because of who God is. So. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for bearing with just me this week. And uh, Father Peter and I will be back together next week, rest assured. But until then, uh, just keep us in your prayers. Thanks, everybody. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org A-I-C-T. And you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.